All right. Well, we are going to look at our, our talk this morning on the Song of the Ages. This is the fourth and final part of, the, of this message right here. And we're going to... Oops. Oh, these electronics. We're going to consider this morning on to victory. Now, for those of you that haven't heard uh, the PowerPoints, let me just give you a very quick synopsis so you're kind of up to speed on what we've covered in uh, the Song of Solomon. Uh, it begins in the first two chapters. It gives a description uh, of Solomon's bride. And we've seen that Solomon, the son of David, also talks about Jesus because he's referred to as the son of David. And Jesus' bride is the church. And so what you have a picture of in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2 there, is a picture of the church in the wilderness. And it refers to vineyards and shepherds. It talks about the church of the valleys, the mountains, clefts of the rock, hiding places of the cliff. And when you look at all those details right there, if, you are, if you've recently read The Great Controversy, or if you've read some other books on the Waldensian history, you'll recognize that, oh yes, when I read about the Waldenses, these are precisely the things I read about uh, during the centuries that they were there out in the wilderness. And then later in chapter 2, it goes on and it talks about the Waldensians and while they were faithful and we are presented their history because they're worthy of emulation, yet after enough centuries of persecution, the leaders began to get weary. They were tired of fighting against the, the papacy, always trying to force them to worship their way. Well, it turns out there was a Protestant rebuke for their, their, their laxity. These new Protestants that had arisen there in the 1500s were calling them to task, saying, you ought to be more faithful. Well, that right there you can get a glimpse of, the way the Bible words it, verse 15, where it says, catch us the foxes, which are always used negatively in Scripture, the little foxes that spoil the vines. Well, following that, when you get to chapter 3 of the Song of Solomon, you have laid out what we recognize in the history of the church as the Great Disappointment. As the Millerite movement was, was gaining speed right there, and then in 1844, what happened? Well, you see here that Solomon's bride in chapter 3, verse 1, says, I sought him, that would be Solomon, her bride, but I found him not. He had withdrawn. And then the solution to the disappointment comes in the remainder of chapter 3. Turns out she says, A little while, and I did find him whom my soul loveth. I had brought him into the chamber of her that conceived me. You were here before. We looked at that word chamber, and if you look at that, you'll find out that that is a word that is used of the bedroom. And so... Uh, it's not surprising that later in the chapter it talks about Solomon here. He was attired as for the day of his wedding. Hmm. Well, that makes sense because historically the great disappointment occurred right as Jesus transferred into the most holy place to begin the work of judgment, which the scripture calls the wedding. Jesus' wedding with his church. In chapter 4, then Solomon, Jesus, gives a description of his bride. There's all kinds of details. We're not going to go through all those details, but the point is he's admiring his bride for her great beauty. And then the last verse of the chapter has this curious remark that he wants the wind to blow on his bride. And we looked at that and thought that was kind of a curious thing. But the wind is the Holy Spirit. 
See, she was beautiful, but she still lacked something. She needs the, the Holy Spirit in her life to be the finishing touch so that she can truly witness of Jesus to everybody. And so we saw in here that as you step through history, this is getting to the 1888 message. That Jesus said she's just about ready, and he was ready to pour out the Holy Spirit, but unfortunately there was resistance, and there was pushback. So the Holy Spirit was needed to bring to full maturity the church at that time. And we, there's a statement here from the book Testimonies to Ministers, page 506, that sheds some light. and tells us here that the latter rain, ripening earth's harvest, represents the spiritual grace that prepares the church for the coming of the Son of Man. But unless the former rain has fallen, there will be no life. The green blade will not spring up. Unless the early showers have done their work, the latter rain can bring the latter rain can bring no seed to perfection. So, in the first part of chapter four, Jesus is admiring his bride, but he notes the need for the Holy Spirit. So he calls for the wind to blow on her. But when you look at the the particular words used, he's describing her with sanctuary language. And the Song of Solomon, to really, to really understand, it's all about the sanctuary. There's all kinds of little hints there. If you start looking at the words, you'll say, "Wait a minute." I see these same words as I go through the sanctuary. Well, in chapter 5, then, we see the response to the 1888 message. What happened? Well, if you've studied it, you know that, yes, there were some that accepted, but there was a lot of pushback. There were those who thought perhaps we were getting a little bit too much on the grace side and not pushing the law enough. And so, at any rate, it wasn't what God would desire. Uh, it tells you in Song of Solomon that the watchmen, church leaders, struck the bride. Hmm. That's a sad statement. It says that they removed her wrapper, her outer garment. They didn't want that. It's kind of like the robe of righteousness being set aside. Hmm. But the good news is that she repents of this and she goes seeking her bride and the Bible says that if you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found of you. So if you push him away, yes, he will go away for a season, but if you say, okay, wait a minute, this is not going well at all, and you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. So she gives a description in the latter part of chapter 5 where she admires Jesus, picture to Solomon, uh, after 1888. And she describes him, interestingly enough, with high priest language. Very fitting because that's the work he's doing right now is the work of high priest in the most holy place. Uh, it's very similar to what you'll find in Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6. So what we're going to do is we're going to just put on the screen here a comparison. How does she respond in Song of Solomon? How does that compare with Daniel 10? So notice here on the screen, got two columns here. And in Daniel 10, this is where the Daniel 10 through 12 was the last vision of the book of Daniel. It gives a description of Jesus when he appears to, to Daniel here. It says first that he was girded with fine gold of Uphaz. Well, Song of Solomon pictures Jesus with his head like fine gold of paws. It's not as obvious in English, but it's just a variant spelling. It's the same thing as upaz. It says in Daniel 10 that his body is like the barrel, which is one of those gemstones in the high priest's breastplate. Well, Song of Solomon says that his hands were like gold inset with barrel. Hmm. It says that his face was like lightning, verses 5 and 6 of Daniel 10. It draws attention to his face in Song of Solomon. It says his face is like Lebanon. Again, Daniel 10 draws attention to his eyes being like lamps of fire. 
Song of Solomon says his eyes are like doves, fitly set. Daniel 10 draws attention to the, to the feet, or some versions say it's the legs, which I believe is correct, are like polished brass. Song of Solomon says that his lower legs are like rods set on a base of, there's that word again, paws. And finally in Daniel 10, it says that his voice and his words were like the voice of a multitude. Song of Solomon, again, now some of these, if it doesn't read quite identical to your translation there, like King James, you can just look these words up. You'll see that I'm just going super literal here. The word is literally his palate. King James says his mouth, but it's palate. But a few versions, like the NRSV, recognize that when it's talking about his mouth, it's, um, I won't give the technical term, but it's a way of restating what you do with your mouth. It's the speech. It's the speech that is most sweet. So you see here, very similar language in both. My dad, does that mean anything, or is it just kind of curious that, okay, so we describe the saying in both passages, who cares, moving on. Well, notice, if you go through the book of Daniel, you'll recognize that the description of Jesus here in Daniel 10 is where Jesus is dressed as a high priest because he's ready to say, okay, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do during the Day of Atonement where I'm the high priest. Song of Solomon, though, when you look at its context, it's saying, well, it's picturing him as the bridegroom. That's what the whole thing is about. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church that he's preparing. So Daniel 10 has the high priest for Day of Atonement. The bridegroom is pictured in Song of Solomon dressed for his wedding. But wait a minute, this is consistent because the Day of Atonement is the wedding in Scripture. So that's why they're so similar and yet a little bit different. It's giving you just a fuller, when you put them together, it's a fuller picture of the same event. That's the whole idea. One little detail here. This is interesting, I think. And if you disagree, well, I don't know. Hopefully you'll learn to like it. If you look up in Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6, it gives all the description I put up there. Well, most translations say that his body was like beryl. However, if you look word by word, you'll notice that this is not the normal word for body. This is a word that appears very few times in Scripture. It is consistently refers to a corpse. Like in the story of Samson, when you have the lion's body and he gets the honey out of it, he, he gets it out of the corpse of the lion. It's the same word here. Jesus is presented in Daniel 10 having a corpse like Beryl. Ooh, that doesn't sound very good, right? I mean, a corpse? Yuck, right? But it also says his voice is like the voice of a multitude, so he's a talking corpse? Well, this is not too hard to deal with. We recognize a simple fact. Jesus died, and thank God he what? Rose again, right? So he can talk after death. Okay. Well, this fits, though, with the whole idea of a marriage. Because when you look at Ephesians, this is probably the clearest statement in Scripture, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself. He died for her, right? Okay. So we have a picture in Daniel of him, yes, having died. He made the atoning sacrifice, right? Song of Solomon, we have a picture of the bridegroom. But a bridegroom necessarily says, in taking the bride, part of the agreement, the arrangement, the covenant is, I will die for you if the need arises. Hmm. 
So it's showing here that, yes, this is not just any ordinary husband. I'm a husband willing to die for you. Hmm. The husband, the, the Jesus who did die, I should go this way. Jesus who did die, he died at the cross, right? That's the first phase of atonement. I have to make the sacrifice. Without that, nothing else will avail. But then, having provided that, Jesus needs to go into the Day of Atonement and do something with it. He's going to transform us by his life. Somehow, however divinity does it, he imputes his life to us. His life becomes our life. We get transformed into his image. And before it's all said and done, Jesus will have a people who will finally have surrendered and will live as he lived. Right? We can't do it in our own strength. But on the other hand, we can do, there's sky's the limit with Jesus, right? So putting those two passages together, that's what we can get out of it here. And atonement, don't forget, is at one So Jesus is making us one with him, which is what happens in marriage, right? You become one. Now, at this point, the bride has already talked about Jesus. She's admired him. She has found him after having resisted what he wanted to do a hundred, what is that, a hundred, 140 years ago. Well, Jesus now admires his bride again. He admired her before, but she lacked the Spirit. Now it's picturing her at a time where, yes, the Holy Spirit is filling her and she is radiating him, and he admires his bride in these verses right here. I wanted to look at only one detail, because we don't want to look at every detail of the book. We're trying to get the big picture. But it makes an odd observation. At least I think it's odd. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Is that to, to you? Is there anybody here who can say just immediately that's plainly obvious what he's saying? Okay, good. I'm not the only one because I looked at that. I used to look at that and think, I'm, it's in the Bible. I know it's inspired, but what does that mean? And I'm a detail person. I love to figure them out, and it just bugs me when I can't. Well, when you get bugged, you can do one, two things. You can just say, ah, I don't know. Let me go to something a little easier, and I'll just read a comfortable passage of Scripture. Or you can get, I don't know, righteously bothered and say, okay, I'm going to go study this out and figure out what does this mean? And I have found that no matter what you're facing in Scripture, if, if, you, if you're diligent, God will show it to you. Seek me and you'll find me. So I did a little digging, and here's what I came up with. See if this doesn't ring true. Does it not harmonize with what we've been seeing, the, the general contours of the book of Song of Solomon? It turns out in Exodus 26, Exodus 25 through 40 deals with the sanctuary, gives all the details there. In Exodus 26, he talks about the coverings that would be on the wilderness sanctuary. There's four of them. I'll show you a picture in a second. And Guess what? One of the coverings was a covering of goat's hair. Okay, now goat's hair as a covering for some sort of a tent, that makes a little more sense, right? To say that a woman has a hair, goat's hair is a little puzzling, right? Unless it's maybe a symbolic woman. Then it, you know, well, the Bible equates the church, God's people, with the sanctuary. For instance, in Revelation 21, I saw the bride coming down from heaven. I saw the city, the sanctuary. But then it says, I saw, let me describe to you the bride. And gives all the details of the city. Aha. So here, this bride has hair like goat's hair. You study down scripture and you realize, oh, of course, because he's picturing the bride in terms of the sanctuary. 
which the whole book of Song of Solomon is about. Okay. Solomon is the one who designed, well, God designed it, but Solomon had the sanctuary built, right? The, the temple. So it, it kind of makes sense. Here's something else, though. In case you're thinking, but it's still a little strange. It's a woman with hair like goat's hair. Look at this. Notice the tabernacle covering is like goat's hair, right? Here's another scripture for you that might be a little bit odd, but maybe it'll harmonize and you'll say, oh, now I know why that's in the Bible. I get it. Anybody read 1 Corinthians lately? 1 Corinthians 11? Look at this. 1 Corinthians 11, 15. You might think, well, why is that in the Bible? We're not going to go into great depth, but it does mention, it says a woman's covering, but actually it's really the word for a wife's covering is her long hair. Her hair is her covering. And so the sanctuary, being a, a woman symbolically, has a covering. Okay, and the sanctuary was one of goat's hair. So anyways, hopefully that made sense. If not, we'll move on. But you can just kind of review that. But the Bible, if you just go through slowly in Song of Solomon, the things, they harmonize. They make sense rather than saying, this is a very queer description of a woman. Now, so he's admiring her bride, her, his bride because she's, she's, she's becoming what the sanctuary was meant to teach us. She's becoming more and more like Jesus. And he's saying, "I ah, this is beautiful. Now, in chapter 6, verse 10, it goes on and it asks that question that was our opening text this morning. Verse 10. He asks, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? This is interesting. When the people, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, ragtag bunch, right? They'd had 400 years, 430, depending on how you count it, a long time in Egypt where they had grown grossly ignorant of God's ways, largely forgotten about the Sabbath, even had to give them directions on how to clean themselves, you know, when they're wandering through the desert, right? And yet, he talks about them coming out, if you say in Scripture, it talks about them coming out in hosts, like armies. You're thinking, boy, that'd be a pretty pitiful army, right? Well, he knew what they could become, but he said, I'm telling you right now, you're my army, and he will train them. Well, likewise here, the church over the centuries has been in some sorry conditions, right? And even as the Advent movement was growing, it kind of got a little bit derailed a little bit off course, and so God's correcting it. But he says, aha, even before she's fully there, he says, you're beautiful, because I see what you're going to become. And so she's, she's beautiful, but she's terrible as an army with banners, right? Not an army with weapons like we fight with in wars, but, you know, mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, those kind of, you know, a prayerful army. We read in our storybook this morning the story of um, Yahaziel. He was a Levite, and Jehoshaphat was going to have the army go out, and he stood up and said, you know what? The Lord, he has this battle. And then the suggestion was put forth, you know what? Why don't we have the choir go out ahead of the army? God has an unusual army. He puts the singers out front just saying, he's winning the battle. He's got a very unusual army. That's the kind of army we're going to have. We're going to be singing his praises, Song of the Ages, right? To this fallen, broken world here. This, this is our privilege to be part of that army. By the way, are you convinced as you hear the news the last couple of years, I mean, I mean, is the world not unraveling like in a, just an alarming rate faster than anything you've seen maybe like, say, 10 years ago? It's like, whoa, what just happened? Is this like, is this out of control? 
I think it's going at such a, a pace that, yes, we could realistically, without setting any dates, we could realistically see something like the end in our lifetime. It's not unreasonable. So, God help us to be ready. Here's a statement from Great Controversy, page 425, that bears um, or sheds some light on the, the text, Song of Solomon 610, that was just on the screen. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above. If he comes in our lifetime, this will happen. Again, I don't know when, but you know, could be soon. Are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a what? Now, to some, that's a little bit alarming because it's like, Brother, if I don't have a mediator, my hopes are lost, right? Well, sure, that's why he's there as a mediator, because we're in desperate need. It's not like he's going to say, five, four, three, two, one. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, why did you keep sinning? It's kind of the other way around. He's looking, preparing us, and he says, every last one of them is ready. I know they're ready. I'm going to step out, as if I were Jesus. I'm going to step out. When he knows you're ready, and he'll say, watch, angels. You see if they fall now. Praise God, we won't. Right? Now, is that due to any of our strength? Is this perfectionism legal? No, 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 no. This is all about, look at what Jesus can do. He can do this with a sorry, and we are very sorry if I'm representative of the bunch, a very sorry bunch of people. But he can do anything. And he's saying, just watch. I'm excited about that prospect. It goes on, it says, their robes must be Spotless. Again, that, that can be alarming because you're thinking, well, I can think of some spots that might have accrued this morning, maybe. Okay, he's not finished. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. That's his blood, right? He gives it to us to wash our robes, but he says, here, here's the detergent, as it will, the were, you know, the blood. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, there's cooperation with him, their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. And all his biddings are enablings, right? So he will enable us to become victorious. Praise the Lord. It continues. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, praise the Lord, there is to be a special work of purification of putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14, which just at some point in the past, we looked at that and saw that when they sing that new song in Revelation 14, that's the three angels' message. Hmm. Okay? Singing is very important in the very end. When this work shall have been accomplished, the followers of Christ will be what? Ready for his appearing, right? He says, if you're enrolling my army, you're going to go through a boot camp in which everybody will be ready, rather than saying a few are weeded out. No, no, no. Everybody comes out is going to be ready to march. And then she quotes some verses. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Malachi 3.4. But we're not studying Malachi today, right? But it's a good verse. Then she quotes Ephesians 5.27. Then the church which our Lord at his coming is to receive to himself will be a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. In other words, she's spotless, right? She's ready for the wedding. But we're not studying Ephesians, are we? But we did look at a verse right next to it there in, earlier this morning. But the next verse 
Guess where she quotes from? Song of Solomon. Then she will look forth fair as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. So, in case this is new to you, in case you haven't really thought much about Song of Solomon or puzzled or thinking, I don't know, is he spiritualizing things or something? Well, notice. This verse right here, talking about the, the bride being ready, is placed here by inspiration at the time when Jesus says, she's ready, I'm coming to get her. So it followed the history quite naturally. So, even if everything else I've said is wrong, this verse isn't wrong. <laughs> now, it goes on, and it makes another curious verse. So, when I come across a curious verse, it's like, okay, let's pause, dig in. He says, or sorry, excuse me, the bride speaking now in response to that. She says, or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadib. And I looked at that and I thought, what does this mean? My soul, like she's talking to herself, like I made me like the chariots of Aminadib. I'm thinking, I don't know, what, what does that mean to be made like chariots? I mean, who is Aminadib? <laughs> right? Well, again, that's where you have to pause and say, well, I don't know. But let's just go you know, hunting, searching, use your concordance. By the way, if you use computerized ones or your app on your phone, you can search faster. And you're doing the same exercise, but you can kind of say, okay, now that's relevant. Nah, no, 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 no. Collect all the relevant ones and you can, you can find things. Well, it turns out, you do a little searching, here's what you'll come up with. First of all, you'll notice how on the screen, can you notice how on the... 612 on the top there, you notice how it says like is in italics, right? That's the King James. That means it was added by the translators to make sense out of the text. And, you know, that's legitimate. You do have to do that in places. However, what I did is I said, okay, I'm going to go through and I'm going to be just as brutally liberal as I can. Or, did I say liberal? Literal. Brutally literal, not liberal, sorry. Brutally literal as possible. And if you do that, I believe you'll come up with this. Before I knew it, my soul appointed for me the chariots of Amenadib. Hmm. Now you might think, okay, so you got rid of the word like. Still not very clear, right? You still got the chariots, you got Amenadib. We haven't answered anything. Well, I know that. But here's the key. What does the bride mean by my soul? Hmm. When you get married to somebody, you become one what? Uh-oh, we don't know this. When you get, yeah, you have one flesh, right? So, in a sense, one is interchangeable with the other. We'll only take that so far. I'm not doing the whole transgender thing. You know what I mean. But you become one. You become one in purpose, right? So, when she says my soul, is she talking about me or the one that I'm one with? You see what I'm saying? Let's look at Scripture. In Song of Solomon, just in the last chapter, chapter 5, verse 6, she says... When she found out that Jesus had left, you know, he'd been opening, wanting to open the door and she tarried and then she finally opened it and, oh no, he's gone. It says, my soul left me when he went down. The one that I won with left. It's as though I lost my own self. Oh, so maybe when she says my soul, she doesn't mean me, the church, appointed the church. She's saying, Jesus, he's one with me. Does Jesus come for his bride with a chariot, by the way? Well, how did he pick up uh, Elijah? Chariot of fire, right? 
if you look at history, how do the Jews tell us that he picked up Enoch? Take a wild guess. Yeah, chariot, right? Okay. Yes, and he's going to come with horses. You ever wonder why in Revelation says he's coming with horses? We've got to have a bunch of horses to pull all the chariots to get his collective bride, right? Centuries worth of resurrected people, right? Of course. Oh, and since it just said that the terrible is an army with banners in verse 10 was right there when Jesus says she's ready. Maybe verse 12 would be kind of like when he's coming, you know, that sort of would follow the timeline, right? But what is this whole amenadib thing? That's kind of a question mark. So let's take a look. Well, when you go back in Scripture, you say, can I find that word or something that's almost identical? It turns out that a man named Aaron, the high priest in the book of Exodus, Verse, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, He took him Elisheva, daughter of Amenadab. It's a vowel difference. The vowels aren't even part of the Hebrew words. They're only consonants. It's the same word. Aaron took him a lady named Elisheva, the daughter of Amenadab, to wife. Is Jesus going to take the daughter of a certain man, like God's daughter, as it were, to be his wife? Like, we're all called to be sons of God, but aren't we called also to be like sons and daughters of God? So in a sense, we're a daughter of God when we accept Jesus, right? Ah, Aaron represented Jesus because he's the high priest. Aaron took a wife who was the daughter of Amenadab. High priest married the daughter of Amenadab. So we go back to our verse here. Before I knew it, my soul, I would say, referring to Jesus, appointed for me the church the chariots of my, that is like Jesus' father, Aminadab. The father says, I've got some chariots for you to pick up your bride. Bring her back to my house. Right? This is how a biblical marriage works. I believe that this verse here, without doing any violation of the text, is saying when Jesus calls for the royal chariots to get his bride. I think that's what this is. Verse 13, chapter 6, Song of Solomon. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon thee. So you have some spectators looking on. They're calling to her. A couple places the calls were a Shulamite. Anybody know what a Shulamite is? Got any other Shulamites in Scripture? You know where Shulam is? Right? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, it turns out Solomon's name in Scripture is Shlomo. That's the Hebrew word. Kind of like that. Shlomo. It's fun. Shlomo. It turns out that Shulamite, it's not quite as obvious in English, but you can kind of see it. It's just the feminine form of Shlomo. Jesus says in Revelation, I will give you a new name, the name of the city that comes down out of heaven, and my new name. Jesus, one of his names is Shlomo Solomon. I'm going to call you Mrs. Solomon, so you are, in Hebrew, Shlumit. You were the female Solomon, as it were. The female counterpart. The feminine of Shlomo. Okay, so there we go. Return, return, O wife of Solomon. We're beginning to see you're the one that's like Jesus. You're his bride. A couple more verses. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Song of Solomon. Another strange description. How beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. We've all seen pretty women before. Is, is your attention usually drawn to their feet? Is that the primary thing? Not usually, right? I mean, 
I mean, if they're wearing some wild shoes, you may kind of notice, but I mean, it's this, it's not normal. But the Bible draws attention. There's something about her feet. Why her feet? You know, usually, quite honestly, when you kind of look down the body, a lot of times people's feet are kind of at the kind of the lower end of the attractiveness spectrum. You know, sometimes people want to cover up because it's like, well, I've got a, a maybe a knotted toe or I've got a bunion or whatever, something, right? There's something about her feet here. Well, it turns out, look at some other translations. Check me out here. Here's a literal translation. It says something similar. It says, how beautiful are your footsteps, not your feet, your footsteps in sandals, O noble daughter. And just a little something for you scholars out there. When it says, O noble daughter, nadiv, like ami nadiv. Hmm, there's that same little word there. O daughter that gets married, essentially. But anyways, what's the, what's the deal with footsteps and sandals? What does this tell us about Jesus? What's it got to do with the end times? I mean, are we really concentrated on our feet right before Jesus comes? Well, in a sense, yes. Okay, what about, let's look at the footsteps first. Psalm 119, 133, this is pretty straightforward. Establish my footsteps according to your promise. Identical word. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. Psalm 119, we're to walk in God's law. Jesus is getting his bride ready to walk faithfully. Beautiful footsteps, right? She's walking agreed with Jesus. Okay? But they're in sandals. What's the deal with sandals? No? Here's one. Ezekiel chapter 16. God is calling his people. In fact, he's proposing marriage here. Notice the context. Notice the same word. God says, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, this is his people, Israel. Behold, thy time was the time of love. I spread my skirt, the end of my garment, over thee. That's biblical language for marriage. It happened with Ruth when Boaz, she said, can you put your garment over me, please? That's what the same thing here. And covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee. That's marriage language. Seth the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. That's like I do. In marriage. Oops, sorry, went the wrong way. Verses 9 and 10 says, Then washed I thee with water and shod thee with badger's skin. There's another strange thing. And I girded thee about with fine linen. Well, the word shod, you, you shod someone with shoes. You put shoes on their feet. The verb is shod, kind of old English. I provided you sandals is the literal word, the exact same word. Not badger skin, but seal skin. Hmm. What's that got to do with anything? It has something to do with Song of Solomon. We're almost there. Well, notice, sandals and seal skin is in blue, fine linen is white. Or is, is yellow. Notice what it says in Patriarchs of Prophets. Good book to review, explains all these things. The roof of the tabernacle, I'm going to show you a picture right now was formed of four sets of curtains, the innermost of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubim of cunning work. The other three respectively were, there's the goats here, I promised you, right? That's number two in the lineup. Rams, skins dyed red, and the top one, she says, yes, seal skins, not badger skins. Seal skins, so arranged as to afford complete protection. Hmm, wait a minute. The sanctuary, again, has seal skin, has goat's hair. The bride has feet like 
shod with seal skin. That's the thing that goes on the outside. That's the outer layer of the tabernacle. A little bit in, you have the goat's hair, right? Here's a picture. This is, in case you're interested, this is from the ESV study Bible, the English Standard Version. It's one of the more recent ones. Great artwork if you want just handy ways of picturing like the high priest costume, if you want to picture the um, uh, Moses temple, Solomon's temple, all these great art. So this one right here just it shows a cutaway, and you can see the four layers. Um, well, can you see the four layers? Oh, okay. Let me come back over here since I need this microphone. It has the four layers there. So that, that inner one that they've shown as a bluish color that's the inner one. The second one would be the goat's hair, and the outer one would be those seal skins. Okay? So the point is, when the bride is ready for the wedding, when Jesus calls for those chariots to come pick her up, she's cleansed, she is clothed in a way that's consistent with the sanctuary. It's symbolic language, right? God doesn't really care about our feet so much. He's just saying this is, in this scheme of things, it's a way of saying her character is ready. Okay, last chapter. We've got about two verses. Chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? There's onlookers saying, There's the beloved Jesus, but who is this, who is this with him? Well, we know the answer. This is the bride, right? They're saying, Wow, I mean, Jesus is stunning. We've already had a description of him there. But look at her. Boy, she's something else too. But that question is very similar to one earlier in Song of Solomon in chapter 3. There, the better translation is not who, it's what. It's a feminine word. It refers to the litter, the, the, the couch that Solomon rides. It says, What is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his litter, which is Solomon's. Don't get confused. Chapter 3 here, it's when Jesus went to the wedding to begin things, and he came on his litter. You've seen like royal like kings or the Queen of Sheba or whatever in those show pictures. You know, you've got these people carrying them along, waving palm branches or whatever, keep them cool. Yes, okay, that's a probably a much better thing. Yes, okay. <laughs> a less worldly description, but yes, that's right. The litter, that's when he began the wedding. Now, at the end, when he's coming to receive her, it's like, wait a minute, there's two of them. Who's this? The bride is with him. That's the idea. That's why the language is similar, but not quite identical. In chapter 3, the who, it's, most translations put who, but it's really a what. Not all of them put, some of them put what, like that ESV. It refers to the litter, which is a grammatically feminine thing. Chapter 8, it really is a who. It's a her. It's the church. She is ready. Okay. And then she has this interesting statement. She says to Jesus, set me as a seal upon your heart. Now, years ago when I looked at that, I thought, I don't understand this book, but I, I looked at that and I thought, seal. As Adventists, when we think of seal, we think of one thing, right? We're thinking of right here, right? That's all I could think of, even though I thought, well, I don't, I don't know how that fits in the whole book. But now that I've kind of thought through things, I'm thinking, well, if she's ready for the wedding, isn't she sealed? Yeah, she is. Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel, the high priest, in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Hmm. The wedding has just concluded the judgment. The breastplate of judgment 
the names, one name of each tribe on the stones, on his heart. There's a picture of the high priest costume, same ESV study Bible, and it just goes over the details, but you know, standard picture, you can see the breastplate right there over his heart. But there's something else. When we talk about the seal of God, don't we talk about it up here? We don't think of it right here, right? But guess what? No inconsistency. In the Bible, yes, in that text, the heart seems to be the thump, thump, thump right here, yes. But for the most part in the Bible, guess what? Your heart is equated with your what? Mind. Aha. So it could also be talking about this right here. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. Thou Solomon, my son, here's Solomon, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. Same thing, right? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. It's obviously just, you know, it's saying the same thing different ways. So mind and heart equated in Scripture. Set me as a seal upon your mind, which of course is up here behind the, what do you, call it? you know, the frontal lobe, behind the forehead. Jeremiah 31, 33, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in there. Obviously not here. He's going to write it here. That's the point. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so the covenant is written in the law, or is, is the law, and it's written in the hearts. But notice this. As Seventh-day Adventists, we can see the crowning touch the marriage. Make a plate of pure gold, talking about Aaron's costume, engrave upon it like the engravings of a seal, holiness to the Lord. Thou shalt put it on a blue lace, and it should be upon Aaron's what? Forehead. The seal is on the forehead. But here is what's really neat for Seventh-day Adventists. There's something else in the scripture that's called holiness to the Lord. And take a wild guess this beautiful Sabbath day as to what holiness to the Lord refers to. You good Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> Notice this. Exodus 31, verse 15. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Literally, holiness to the Lord. In Hebrew, it's identical. They modified a little bit of English because they didn't quite catch it. It's holiness to the Lord. The Sabbath is. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Guess how God does it? He says, I'm preparing a people. One of the key things they need to understand is the Sabbath. Not because, you know, if you have that, oh, good, that's off your to-do list now. Now you're savable. No. <laughs> he says, you need to understand it because, or you need to accept it because you don't know how I do this but the Sabbath is a key instrument I use to totally prepare you. It's the marriage seal. Without the marriage seal, you can't be certified as his bride in the very last days. Because he says, I'm going to do something I haven't done through all history. I'm getting ready to root out sin entirely from your character. You'll be tempted. You're going to be tempted to the very end. But you don't have to be yielding. Jesus says, I can give you, I can give you a backbone. It's not going to bend at all. I mean, this is, this is incredible what he does. Yeah, I gave, them, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign or a seal between me and them, that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So when she says, set me as a seal upon your heart, she's saying, perfect my character, and by implication, show me everything I need to know about the Sabbath. Show me how this can change me. Seal me. So it's the marriage seal, in case you never saw that before. That's what it is. 
That's what it is. It makes Christ and his bride one. Don't understand fully how it does it. I just know that's what Scripture teaches. Praise God, we know the Sabbath. Now let's learn it as much as we can. And it says here in verse 6, For love is strong as death. Did Jesus die for his bride? Dumb question, right? Is he preparing a people who will love not their lives unto death? It's going to be each one is willing to die for the other, as it were. Jesus died for us, we'll die for his honor, you might say like that. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Well, that doesn't sound so good. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Hmm. Notice that jealousy is cruel as the grave. Jealousy is not usually good, right? The way Hollywood pictures it, you know, you get some, I don't know, some hunk up there, and he's jealous because his woman did him wrong, and he's going to go bust the bad guy or whatever, right? That's foolishness. That's worldly jealousy. Does God, does he get jealous of us? Yeah, that's why they did... There is godly jealousy in the Bible. Notice this. First of all, if you just re, you've kind of organize that text, love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. You see death and grave, kind of the same thing. Strong and cruel. Love and jealousy. Jealousy is another word for love. Hmm. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Hmm. You can have godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, then I present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Hmm. Jealousy. This is God's love for us. He says, if you worship images, that makes me jealous. Second commandment. Anything but him. That's what the jealousy part is. But now what's this thing here? Most vehement flame. Love is a most vehement flame. Sounds kind of poetic and nice and beautiful, right? What does it mean? Well, it turns out this is where we need to look at the word and do literal translation here. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very blaze of Yah, short name for Yahweh. If you look at Young's literal translation, it talks about its burnings or burnings of fire. Uh, the, the, let's see, what is it? the blaze of, it says Jah, but Jah, Yah, same thing. It's not a most vehement flame. It's the blaze of Yahweh himself. He is a consuming fire. Did you know his love consumes? It either consumes sin or consumes a sinner, right? Yeah, this is, this is that. Ezekiel 24, 47 says, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, I have kindled a fire in you and it will devour in you. The blazing flame, same words, will not be quenched. So there's a love, there's a flame associated with Yahweh. That's what it is right there. It's saying, I have a love for you that's stronger than death. I died for you when you're a sinner because I knew what you could become. I would rather die than see you lost. And that love is burning hot right now. And he says, I want to light it in you so the world will finally see me instead of a world seeing all this idiotic Facebook and everything else where everyone wants to do every worldly thing like, imaginable and things that are even unimaginable, unspeakable. But when the world's the darkest, guess what? That flame is going to shine the brightest. They're going to say, whoa, what happened to these people? Wow, I've never seen it like this. That's the point. Many waters would not be able to extinguish this love, nor could rivers overflow it. Should a man give all the wealth of his household for love, they would show utter contempt for it, pale in comparison to God's love. It goes on, 8 verse 8, Our sister is little. What shall we do for our sister on the day that she is spoken for? What does it mean to be spoken for? Yeah, when the, you know, the parents say, yeah, we approve this. This, is a, this. this marriage can go forward. When she's spoken for, it's like, yep, this one has been selected, and it's okay. 
Well, she answers her own question, or the text answers it. Then, when she's spoken for, it is certain that I will be in his eyes as one who has found, what's that word? Peace. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Shlomo. Solomon's name means peace. When she's spoken for, when he says, yes, your character is perfect, he said, you have finally found me. You search for me with all your heart. You're filled with Shlomo, the peace that passes understanding. You're filled with Jesus himself. It's a play on words. She's found both Shlomo in the Song of Solomon, but she's found true peace that comes from knowing him fully, having surrendered everything to him. There it is, yeah. You will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found if you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 13 to 14. There it is. So to find Shlomo, Jesus, is to find Shalom, same root, which is peace. There you go. Anybody want peace today? <laughs> some of you had some you know, goings on in your life where you're thinking, could I have any more hecticness? Or, I mean, that's not a word, but you know what I mean. It, could things get more hectic? I should say it that way. Well, you want peace, find Jesus. The last two verses of the book are this. Jesus is talking to her, and he says, you, that is the bride, who dwell in the gardens, the companions are listening close to your voice, cause me to hear it too. And you know what she says? She says three words. Hurry, my beloved. Does that sound like a verse maybe more familiar to you, maybe from evangelistic series? Anything in Revelation to that effect? You know how Revelation ends? Revelation twenty two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say, come. And then you go four verses later and it's like, Come quickly. Huh? She's saying the same thing. She's saying, oh, Lord, finish it. Just come. She's eager. Anybody here eager for the marriage to be finished? Go home with Jesus? Yeah. That's what it's expressing here. It's not just, okay, whew, yeah, that's one of our doctrines, doctrine number 13 or whatever it is, you know, second coming. Okay, let's go into doctrine 14. No, 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 no. This is the hope of the ages, the, the consummation of the ages, kind of a play on words, right? It's come, Lord, come for me. Come take us home. So here it is. God's bride in the Song of Solomon is eager for him to come. Are you eager for Jesus to come? I hope so. Number two, God's bride is asking Jesus to seal her. You want to be sealed today? You want those seal skins, as it were, right? Okay. And third, finally, God's bride doesn't just look out for her own self saying, seal me. She calls others to the wedding and say, come, hurry, my beloved. Do you feel an eagerness? Would you like to have Jesus put an eagerness in your heart to give the wedding invitation, to sing the song, like the Song of Solomon, the new song of Revelation 14? Do you want to join in issuing that invitation to this very lost world? All right. If it is, we've been sitting for a little while. Why don't you close? Let's have our closing song here, which is 612, Onward Christian Soldiers. We're that army, you know, terrible with banners, right? We can stand up, it's okay. An army terrible with banners right here, but banners of love. Now let's read about that army here. Onward Christian Soldiers. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.